Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Film Chat, a podcast all about the Greek god of wine and digital audio, Danisius, who, despairing at the state of online radio, decides to travel to the underworld to bring back the recently deceased podcaster, Sam Ripides. Danisius sets off with his clever and brave servant, Xanthi Rogers, and the pair get up to all sorts of japes, including encountering a chorus of frogs phoning into LBC, and taking turns to impersonate Ira Glees. That's a kind of uh, Ira Glass yeah. Heracles yeah. joke there. Ira Glees. Eventually, they reach their destination, and Danisius must adjudicate a contest between Sam Ripides and, for some reason, Edward R. Murrow to decide who he will take back to the land of the living. Danisius settles on Edward R. Murrow. Is what I would be saying if this were a particularly tortured radio podcast-themed version of the ancient Greek comedy The Frogs by Aristophanes. Instead, to everyone's relief, this is just a podcast in which we talk about and review films. I'm Sam Foster, and joining me, the effeminate god of religious ecstasy with a deep understanding of tragic drama, Danny Moran. Hello. Hello. <laughs> On this episode of Film Chat, we review Nate Parker's Birth of a Nation, a film where white people kill black people, and then the black people kill white people, and then the white people kill black people. Spike Lee Chirac, a film where black people try to stop black people from killing black people. And Oliver Stone's Snowden, a film about a man who's white and a polar bear in a snowstorm covering his nose. Plus, we wonder what the best film to watch at Christmas is, wonder at what point does method acting go too far, and learn about the newest fragrance from an icon of British cinema. All of which should give me just enough time to perform my latest impression. Steven Seagal being attacked by a seagull while eating a bagel. <sighs> get, get away from me. This is my bagel. Fucking seagull. <laughs> Once, once again, you've um, knocked it out of the park. Thanks. I've spent a lot of time. So I see. Working on that. Films, 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 lots of films, 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 films. He's good films, bad films, fun films, sad films, films we love, weird films, Lars von Trier films, old films, new films, some John Hello, again, <laughs> after the theme tune. We have a special guest on this week's podcast, yeah. Dougal McQueen. Hello. Hi. Lovely to have you on, Dougal. It's Very a nice. pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Um, we are doing this in a different place to normal. We're in where Dougal lives. Yeah. Um, we're in <laughs> my, my sound booth. Where we're I in sleep. Dougal's sound booth. His sound booth slash tent. Um <laughs> Slash shag pad, his shag tent pad in Hyde Park. <laughs> it's very picturesque. It's very cold. Yeah, it's chilly, but it's got a lot of atmosphere. But we've got Winter Wonderland just around the corner, just around the pissing tree. Right. So once we've finished recording and having our post-recording <laughs> piss sesh, head straight to Winter Wonderland and live it up. Yeah, so absolutely. sorry if we sound a bit excited on today's recording, because we're all looking forward to the Winter Wonderland just outside Dougal's tent flap. So the first bit of correspondence is from you, Dougal. What did you say? 
Um, I I sent you a link to Mark Kermode's um, 10 best films of 2016, and I asked, what say you? Uh, those films are um, Under the Shadow, Notes on Blindness, Embrace of the Serpent, Son of Saul, 13th Room, Julieta, I, Daniel Blake, Your Name, and uh, a tie between a United Kingdom and Things to Come. First of all, what the first thing you? I want to say in response to this list is that it makes me feel ignorant. There's some unfamiliar names on here. Well, he loves to do that, doesn't he? He loves to put in a load of films that were only seen but that's, once on but the that Isle of Man by, by two people and a, and a yeah. peanut. But it shouldn't go over my head. All right, I should be that peanut. <laughs> we got a whole film podcast here. This is episode 98. Yeah, but he, you know, watches every movie that comes out. Yeah. We're limited to he what we can see. He gets paid to do it and he gets some info. We have to pay mm, to do it. That's and true. And he gets paid to do it. I guess I do, know more, about, I do know more about credit ratings than he does. So, um, but what Maybe is notes on blindness, for example? Some, some no. insurance or something. Yeah. Or a mortgage. <laughs> uh, yeah. As far as I remember, notes on blindness was a sort of docudrama about a guy who wrote a book about going blind and they sort of dramatized it with Daniel Skinner in the lead, the hmm. guy who was one of the heavies in High Rise and ah. Angelo Epiphemus, that sort of character from Shooting Stars. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That I guy, he's yeah. like growing a beard and become an actor. Gotcha. Um, and what about Things to Come? What's that? That's the other Isabel Huber film. I'm not sure if it's, it's either come out or has had a very limited release, but it keeps on cropping up on these lists, so we need to get on it. What do you think of the list, both of you, Danny and Dougal? What do you make of well, it? Well, the ones I've seen... I mostly enjoy. I think Son of Saul and Brace of the Serpent are both amazing. I didn't like Room. I didn't get it. But I'm... I saw that on the on a plane recently, Room. Yeah? I wouldn't say I didn't like it, but it's a very strange film. It's quite a hard film to, to know what to make of it, to be honest. Well, so I understood your misgivings with it. Maybe you should watch Airplane in a Room. And I... <laughs> <laughs> and then I'll understand something that I didn't get watching Room on an airplane. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. Uh, I think the like all these movies are pretty acclaimed, but a United Kingdom is very like ordinary. I would say. Do you feel like there's like another? There's more like great movies that you know. Oh, absolutely. They're not in this list. I mean, I don't want to. Sorry. Well, I'm gonna come to his defense. I think I think he's very very good. I think what sort of puts him apart from the other film critics, or maybe the broad miasma of other film critics, there are some very very good ones on him. is he sort of kind of he kind of w- just watches everything and has a very bland sense of I like this or I like that or you know doesn't give too many lofty sure. kind of um, in depth sort of flowery reasons and he, well, does he doesn't he doesn't he's not one of those people who feels like they have something to prove which a lot of them do you know? yeah yeah and he does sort of champion uh, kind of you know British films that maybe are a bit schlocky I mean he loved Bell for example Amarante. Right. Which is very schlocky and quite yeah. mawkish, but it's also it's got good things in it, and it's a really interesting story. And so he just said, "Oh, it's my, it's my, you know, it's in my top five films of the year or something." Um, and him saying that means that more of those films get made, even sure. if it was a bit, you know, a bit so softy. Do you think he's using his cachet to d- to do to a public d- service? To do, yeah, exactly. Like I've got to champion these movies. That's the role of a critic. At these, un- you know, there's yeah. no point just throwing my weight behind something everyone else loves. I'm gonna. That might be true because it's not a particularly mainstream list, actually. Generally, I think even even um, you know maybe for the past movies he's championed, this is a this is a list that's particularly concentrated on underseen films. I haven't seen any of them. I've underseen all of them. You haven't seen any of these movies. Well, Thirteenth is extremely good, and I think it's good that he's raising it because like that's a very that's a great movie to see. And I, Daniel Blake, is also brilliant and should be very widely seen. Um, so I think your interpretation of his criteria is probably quite accurate, judging from this list. Chris Young writes in, he says, What film should I watch this Christmas then, lads? With all the family gathered round and the dog. Deagle McQueen, who is physically present here and is also <laughs> writing in quite a lot. Hello. Yeah. His suggestion um, is All I Want is Christmas, also known as Switchmas, a very good um family comedy drama family film about a little jewish boy whose family does not celebrate christmas who switches places with a gentile whose family does celebrate <laughs> christmas so that the gentile boy can go to uh, florida and the jew <laughs> jewish <laughs> the jew boy the jewish boy can go to christmas town it's a very touching film and i would like 
us and you to enjoy a little bit of the trailer now. Ira J. Finkelstein is obsessed with Christmas. Ira J. Finkelstein! Dinner! Take that shrub back where it belongs before your mother gets home. This is not a shrub. It's the Finkelstein Christmas tree. There's just one little problem. <laughs> His family doesn't celebrate Christmas. Why not? Ira Finkelstein's Christmas. It's not every kid that gets to go to Florida for the holidays. Florida's the opposite of Christmas. Where should be you off to? Stupid Florida. What about you? Stupid Christmas town. Christmas town? He'll do anything to get the Christmas of his dreams. Hey, you kind of look like me, except for those glasses. Can't see. I bet your grandparents won't even recognize. Charming. Good film. We've all seen this film, right? Yeah. Yeah. Would you describe it as a Christmas classic? Absolutely. Would you describe it as better than It's a Wonderful Life? Uh, yes. Good. Moving on. So, <laughs> Dan Knoll, he suggests Silent Night, Deadly Night, Part 2. I think that's a joke answer. It's a joke answer. Is this the film which is famous for the Garbage Day line, or is that a different movie? I don't know. Do you not know that sort of viral clip of some, like, the bad lines where the guy's like, Garbage Day, and then he oh, just yeah. shoots that guy? <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't know. Is that from this? <laughs> do you got any input i don't know what you're talking about so. okay fair enough you don't want to watch that on christmas day a horror movie in the middle of the day when you're full of turkey mm. and, and roast potatoes or a nut roast you're right the family uh, gathered around and the dog that's are, a middle um, of the day movie isn't just it? out of interest what are the um christmas films with trump in them do we know well home alone, two. Home, alone? Oh, yeah. home alone 2 is he in any more do you feel like Zoolander. there should be some topical reference with your christmas movies or maybe you could have like a drinking game where you neck four bottles of vodka when you see trump in a christmas film is that is that the is that the only <laughs> that's the only, that's the only one but as soon as he appears how about <laughs> it's like home <laughs> alone too and you're like sober for like an hour of the movie and then you like try and kill yourself <laughs> he turns yeah. up you neck four bottles of vodka here's the drinking game every time die. you see kevin McAllister, you take one sip of sparkling water <laughs> and whenever you see trump you neck four bottles of vodka it's a fucking insane game, man. <laughs> no, it's a good game. It's very Christmassy. Charlie Wallace uh, suggests Die Hard or Bad Santa 2, a film that's not even out. Or did it come I've out? No, it's out. It. I've seen it. Oh, it's out? Dougal's seen it. Dougal, yeah. review Bad Santa 2 for us. Well, Bad Santa 2 follows on from Bad Santa, which I haven't seen. Um, you've got, wait, you've got 25 minutes, so take your time. <laughs> all right. Well, it all began when I was <laughs> five years old. Um, no, well, uh, Thurman Merman's grown up, and he's, he's sort of a man now. Um, uh, it's, it's fine. There's a couple of good lines, and um, it's mostly objectionably bad. Yeah. Um, and and if it's not that, it's very boring. Does it live up to the original Bad Santa in your view? I haven't seen it, okay. so I don't know. I've come cold into the Bad Santa franchise. The first Bad Santa, bad I think, Santa is too. great. Yeah? I love Well, it's bad the director Santa. of Ghost World, isn't it? What's his Terry's name? Terry Zwigoff. Yeah. So he's, got he's called shots. Terry Zwigoff. <laughs> Zwigoff. So his name is the phrase, tear his wig off. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Terry Zwigoff. So... He's got a kind of Trump mocking name. But also in, in a, a way, it's quite. It's in like a way, Terry's it's like, that's quite a like. Terry's that's Wiggoff. It. Yeah. It's a bit. Terry's Wiggoff. Terry's Wiggoff. <laughs> that's very. That's very, That's topical as well. It's quite subversive, given that we've got a president. Well, we, you know, the world suffering with a U.S. president who's got a terrible toupee. Yeah. I feel like Terry's and Wiggoff is going to be held toupee. He's the director of the time, isn't he? Yeah, Terry Swigoff. Dougal, quickly. Best Christmas movie. Go. Uh, Switchmas, obviously. Sam. Oh, I don't know. Uh, I want to hear your version, and I'll, I'll <laughs> want to hear your pick, and I'm trying to think of something. Well, you want a movie. I don't think you watch anything good because you're a bit drunk and a bit full of food. It's something you've seen before and something simple. So I think Chicken Run. Oh, wow. Yeah. And because most of the gags are visual, so you don't have to, like... Pay attention to the. You don't you know, have to be listening. Yeah, you, can you normally you can eat so much you're deaf. deaf. <laughs> well, that's I mean you don't have to be completely fully engaged. <laughs> you needed something that would work for a child. The food and the booze which reduces you to be about five years old in terms of capacity. Yeah, and there are also children there. Yeah, assuming you've got some kids in the house. Whether they're there, <laughs> invited or not. No, they don't. They don't come to Christmas. Yeah, they they're, they're doing trick or treat yeah. Christmas edition. Yeah, the children work Sam, on a three month. Uh, go lag. best Christmas movie uh, or the movie Chris should watch. I'm just going to say The Apartment because I like it a lot, and they have Christmas in the film, but it doesn't match your criteria. 
but it's just a good film and that's and can Christmas I, can in Can I have two more because I, because you two more you studied Switch two before. more two more well, well, bloody hell at, you're really you're really taking liberties with your guest appearance I'm here. looking at the VHS of Mouse Hunt um, over Danny's uh, thatch and um, I think Mouse Hunt is a great one also um, <laughs> yeah. there's a film which I used to watch over and over and over and over again um, as a kid especially at Christmas called um, Swiss Family Robinson with John Mills and oh, yeah, yeah. other famous people who I don't know because the last that's time I watched it I was, I was seven um, and He's it's absolutely one. wonderful. Yeah, and they sing "O Tenenbaum, O Tenenbaum" at the end, the German Christmas Carol. It's cool. great because it's, it's made in the '60s and it's got all these wild animals in it, and you think some of them may have died in the filming. You know, before health and safety ruined movies, and the camera before fucking well. Brussels. Yeah, before fucking in. Brussels, fucking Brussels Parliament <laughs> yeah. deciding whether you can like film a jaguar attacking fucking a kid Jungkers. or whatever. <laughs> Yeah. But yeah, it's like they build a massive, awesome treehouse house, which is like a Heath Robinson contraption, and they have like actual animals in it, like an actual lion and tigers and bears. Oh, right. good. oh my! <laughs> oh my! That sounds very good. Superhero films announced, casting rumors leaking out. M Night Shyamalan's film is hated. Paul Thomas Anderson's is fated. Meryl Streep's Oscar tipped. Matt Damon's in a viral vid. Michael Bay's made a mint. Okay, news now. So, um, some controversy has erupted in Hollywood at a time when I feel like generally uh, about every week it turns out that someone in the 70s was horribly sexually abused that you didn't know about previously. Yeah. That seems to be one of the most common uh, stories that occurs these days. And um, in that spirit, some news has come out about the movie Last Tango in Paris which I was mainly aware of as a sexy, erotic Marlon Brando movie. Yeah. Uh, it's didn't famous, know much famous about... for the sex scenes. It's, fam- it's famous for being having very explicit sex. Yeah. Uh, made in 1972, directed by Bernardo Bertolucci. And um, I didn't even know that it contained a rape scene, but it does apparently, uh, because I haven't seen it. Marlon Brando um, rapes an actress, well, <laughs> the character called Maria, played by an actress called Maria Schneider, who was only 19 years old at the time. And recently a video surfaced of Bertolucci speaking in 2013, in which he said that him and Marlon Brando basically discussed on the morning of the shoot the way in which they would do the scene. In the scene, Marlon Brando's character uses a stick of butter as lubricant. And um, this was an idea that they came up with and executed without um, knowledge of the actress. And Bertolucci said, The sequence of the butter is an idea that I had with Marlon in the morning before shooting. He said that he wanted her reaction as a girl, not as an actress. Which is messed up. And it's pretty fucked up. As, Listen, as, I trust her to say all the lines and play the character, but I feel for this, the butter scene. Yeah. <laughs> I, can't, I can't be dealing with her pretending to feel sexually assaulted. That's fucked up. Um, That's a pretty I, fucked up conversation between two guys <laughs> in the morning. <laughs> uh, so uh, the whole rape scene—I got this great yeah. idea, but the the this like this weird uh, trend with like crazy directors of like tricking their actors into performances that like uh, just creating conditions which will bring out the truest performance. But this is like that taken to the nth degree. Uh, it's in, it's interesting in a couple of levels. I think there's like. There's a, there's something um, objectionable about the idea that actors can't be trusted to perform and that you have to do something that's absolutely completely real. Yeah. And they, they, they can't just perform it. Well, there's that famous um, anecdote on the set of Marathon Man where like Lawrence Olivier's in it and Dustin Hoffman was like... He like, like actually uh, ran. ran like yeah. a mob for a take to see him out of breath. And Lawrence Olivier's like, you tried acting. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, can't help but agree with... Exactly, and I think like that, there's of, the same know. strange attitude in this thing. It's this combination of like misogyny and like sort of egocentrism on the part of the directors, where they're like, uh, yeah. or the director and uh, Marlon Brando, where they're like, this young girl, she can't just act it. We have to like make her have a real reaction. Yeah. But I feel like the reaction of her character in this scene is not necessarily going to be equivalent to the reaction of an actress being surprised by a horrible thing happening. Yeah, know? not at all. Like, those aren't necessarily emotionally equivalent things to happen. So why would you want to evoke one rather than just having her act the other? 70s was a strange time. 70s, Definitely yeah. Definitely when, yeah, when planning a rape scene, you, it's important to be as method as possible. Yeah, I think what you want to do is do, like, a method scene where what no she's doing is, like, um, I don't know, grouting the tiles or something like that. 
You know, she can do that for real. What does no one have a method act being a nice person? Yeah, like method giving to the poor, where they give their real actual money. Well, um, Bertolucci, you belong in jail, so... It, it's a weird, like, just sort of admitting that you committed sexual assault, isn't it? It's a very strange... It's out... bizarre on a number of levels. Well, it's just sort of, you know, uh, atypical of these kind of stories where people just don't even realise they've done something wrong. He doesn't even it's understand that it would fact. be objectionable. Yeah, yeah. you know, what? Sure. I'm a director. It was art, yeah. Yeah, it was art. <laughs> Yeah, um, rape this girl. What are you gonna do, eh? Didn't Bertolucci <laughs> outlive her as well? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's, and she was she. That's I don't know. I don't know details of the story, but I, but but like she spoke in later years about how this had been like this was really unpleasant, you know, scene for her, and she felt violated. And uh, yeah, she's died. And it's fucked like, up. It's fucked up. Thank God everything is now fine. Well, hopefully that film will be removed from, you know. The criterion collection, sight and sound lists, and oh, and I see, DVD, yeah, yeah, and, and yeah. the criterion, yeah, things like well, that. It's kind of funny now because it's one of those movies that gets talked about a lot, and I was like, oh, I'll get around to seeing that, but now it's now loaded with all this horrible shit. So it's like, okay, yeah, absolutely, yeah. The second series of Last Tango in Halifax is going to have a hell of a time. Oh, what's one of? Probably. I think it's one of the weird things about <laughs> popular culture generally is that like these stories can come out and they horrify people, and it doesn't actually have any real world consequences because people are too, um, like awkward about actually addressing it addressing it yeah. and then these these things it's don't in actually the get addressed past, Sam. it's in the past what's the point of dragging it well up? there's something particularly out next week Calm yeah, exactly down. <laughs> but it, i think there's something really like yeah. mind-boggling about the way that it's on record and everyone talks about the fact that like roman polanski like any rape as the girl and Child. stuff and like this yeah. like literally like you know and everyone's like yes well you know the ghost is pretty good so. <laughs> You know, and it's like, I don't and know. How about, how about Carnage, huh? Yeah. <laughs> what a movie. Carnage, great movie. <laughs> I don't know. I think there's there's a certain amount of cognitive dissonance that people have to engage in in order to make things continue Absolutely. as they were before. And it's sort of just an interesting thing to witness. So I doubt it will have any consequences for Bertolucci, to be honest. Yeah. But it's just something people will, like, you know, occasionally think about. It's like, remember when he said that he did this awful, awful thing? Yeah. yeah. That was funny. What do you reckon? What do you think about the dreamers? <laughs> Misstep or? <laughs> Genius. <laughs> Yeah. Like when Lars von Trier got his persona non grata at Cannes for making these ill judged sort of Nazi jokes, people were like, oh, he's dismissed from Cannes, he's disgraced it, that's, uh, uh, you know, unacceptable. But when his first film, Element of a Crime, played at Cannes, Roman Polanski was head of the jury. And it won, like, uh, Best Newcomer or some category. It's like, okay, so this statutory rapist can be head of the jury, but this but, guy yeah. makes... He right, if you make Hitler, a Hitler joke, yeah, well, you're that's out. The thing, that's the thing about Lars, Lars von Trier. And this links back to Kermode. Absolutely, Because Kermode yeah. went and interviewed him. Oh, here we him, go. Full circling. And Kermode did this whole very, very level-headed video about how Lars von Trier says silly things and probably shouldn't speak on camera very much. But by all accounts, Lars von Trier is a real sweetheart. And apart from Paul Bettany, who had a terrible time, on Dogville, everyone seems to have a lovely time on his films, and he doesn't get people to do things they don't want to do, and he doesn't do things in in totally mad method, sort of unpleasant, uncomfortable ways. He makes films, and it's the same with Werner Herzog. They they have this reputation for being very, um, you know, envelope pushing kind of. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the way they make films is actually quite sort of workmanlike, and everyone is just happy, and everyone goes home at yeah, five, it's work, you know? and Absolutely, everyone has yeah. a an hour for lunch. Yeah, and that's sort of that's almost part of being very edgy, is also being a bit dull in how you do it. Well, that thing, that's, sure I think that's just happy. being a professional and not being a narcissist. I yeah. feel like if you if you're turning up to work this day and being like, well, what I'm going to do today is spray uh, pig's blood in the face of my actress because it's important to me that she doesn't know it's going to happen or something. It's like you're just a dick. You're not making great art. That's just. You know, yeah. just, you're just a dick. You're just a dick. But then, obviously, there's notable there's notable exceptions like Stanley Kubrick on The Shining, and but he was a dick. And William Friedkin on The Exorcist, who um just dick. Sh- fired off shotguns <laughs> during the dick. filming. Dick, dick, Dougal. <laughs> dick alert. They're a pair of dicks. Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> the dick alarm just went off. Talking about all these dicks. <laughs> but like, yeah, but they, those those are both directors who are notorious. Do you reckon like Kubrick's movies would be total garbage if he'd only done like, you know, like. 14 takes rather than 111 or whatever like well i think someone worked it out and most of the takes are like sort of three to eight. Oh, really is that true (laughs) (laughs) head over to hulu this march where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long catch the award-winning movie poor things starring emma stone mark ruffalo and willem dafoe 
check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. And now for Danny to review a film he recently saw. Was it staggeringly brilliant? Was it Oscar Jingley Paul? How did Danny form a judgment? We're about to hear his thoughts. If he does a rubbish job, then Sam will tell him off. So, Birth of a Nation is the somewhat controversial film by Nate Parker, directed by him, written by him, produced by him, starring him, did the music, painted the sets, everything. Uh, it's written by him and uh, Jean McCartney Celestin, and it's based upon the true story of Nat Turner, who led a slave rebellion in 1831. And the story is about Nat Turner, played by Nate Parker, is a slave, but he's also a Baptist preacher who lives on a Virginia plantation owned by Samuel Turner, played by the handsome Army Hammer. And with rumors of insurrection in the air, um, a cleric convinces Samuel that Nate should sermonize the other slaves, sort of calm them down, be like, hey, just don't worry about being a slave, it's in the Bible. And uh, thereby sort of quelling any rumors of uprisings. And as Nate witnesses the horrific treatment of his fellow slaves in less good plantations, I guess. <laughs> Heavy use of uh, quotation marks here. Uh, he realizes he can no longer just stand by and preach, and he leads a rebellion which had huge historical ramifications. So I didn't like it at all. I thought it, it's a very problematic film which contains some genuinely good bits, but these are somewhat negated by these creative decisions that leave a really bad taste in your mouth. And it's taken this very emotive subject matter and facts that are historically documented and changing it and molding it to form a very egocentric narrative and at times i was wondering is this the birth of a nation or is it the nat turner story or is it the nate parker story and nate parker's ego is the drive behind the making of this film and also the lasting impression <laughs> of the film yeah I think the best thing about it is the title, which is the name of this 1915 D.W. Griffiths movie where the KKK are heroes. And there's something kind of bold and audacious about reclaiming that title for a film about the slave uprising. And it's a very passionate film. And uh, it's got a certain energy because you know the uprising at some point is going to happen. There's a slight sort of ticking clock nature to the film. And I guess it's inevitably going to be compared with 12 Years a Slave. And that has a very matter-of-fact approach to its material which is what kind of gives it its power but i think the approach of the film is like if 12 years a slave was someone calmly explaining slavery to you birth of a nation is someone sort of yelling at you yeah uh, but there's something a little tautological about it it's sort of it just a slavery is wrong again and again and doesn't really investigate it in any way that is interesting or wants to deal with the complexity of the issues but something it does have um not over 12 years a slave, but some a different angle it has is that it really deals with the idea of Christianity's part in slavery. And yeah, it was a kind of a battleground in the moral debate over slavery. Yeah, and by far the most interesting character in the film is Army Hammer's slave owner, which is a bit like Benedict Cumberbatch's nice, quote-unquote, slave owner becoming Michael Fassbender. That's like his arc. And the idea that he's got these sort of interesting shades of grey and his conscience is completely tied to his wallet and he's nice when he needs to be, but when times are tough, he's willing to just be stop see, seeing these people as people. And it has these very bizarre and surreal dream sequences, which are also very effective, which are apparently based on the real Nat Turner had these visions. There's something very biblical about this, both the original historical story and the film. And there's a real like Old Testament vibe, the blood wall out. He's sort of Moses, that kind of, yeah, the rapture is going to happen which gives it a certain energy. But at the same time, like basically Nat Turner went nuts and butchered all these people. And it has no qualms of sort of this guy's a Christian. He's like Christ-like, but he also, he's like Christ, but he kills a bunch of people. And it doesn't really address that. <laughs> There's a bit of a conflict in that. That yeah. conflict. It, but I don't think he doesn't address it because he doesn't see that there is one. And that's like sort of indicative of the slightly reductive and simplistic take he has on the material. And it's very backwards film, especially in its treatment of female characters. There are two rape scenes in it, both of which are off camera, and both of them are purely from the male perspective. 
and they only exist to motivate the male characters right. in a way which is really icky. Yeah. Like, ugh. And, uh, yeah, that was basically the reaction of the audience most of this. <laughs> <sort> of, <sighs> and basically, it's got this weird perspective where everything is seen through Nat Turner's gaze, but it's Nate Parker's gaze, and it's almost as if every atrocity in the film is just some sort of points which will eventually accumulate to where it will equal rebellion. So he sees some horrific stuff, and it, the, it's a close-up of, of uh, Nate Parker just reacting to that. Like, the real burden is him witnessing it. And his, rather you, than the people like, you see his like rebellionometer go up a little bit. Well, like, it is a bit like that. It's like Scott Pilgrim, and it kind of, like... Well, for example, there's a scene, there's a flogging scene, and the shot is completely his close-up. And it's not about the pain inflicted, it's about him... Thinking, maybe... Uh, maybe I should rebel. Rebellion. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and the lighting is, like, halo-like. He's, like, stretched out like Christ. And it's all about this one guy. And the real guy butchered women and children, and the actual story reads like a man who was pushed to the edge and, like, completely lost his mind, which makes perfect sense, really in terms of what happened to him. But that is too complex and, I don't know, uh, shocking a story to tell. And so the audacity of the title is a completely misleading thing because it's so conventional and reductive in its storytelling. So I read and like it. And I also think, who wants to see a pretty good or okay-ish slavery film? Nobody. It's got to be It's got to be good. a masterpiece or it's not worth the sort of toughness. Yeah. Yeah, I don't... It's not a film not worthy of its controversy in a way because it's just quite amateurish. So, 5,000 stars out of 10 billion stars. Sam and Danny both watched a film and they decided to record a few opinions on the things they saw. You're gonna hear them in a moment or so. There could be angry disagreements, but their views are normally quite close. A joint review shared between two podcast brothers. Do they let one another speak or do they Sam, you saw a film which is easier to watch, but <laughs> more competently made. <laughs> Great segue. So pro. And so did I. That's an episode 98 segue. Bam. Yeah, we've both seen it. So this is a more contemporary um, film dealing also with race relations in the United States. Chirac, the new film by Spike Lee, um, who's uh, made had a very long um, checkered career as an American filmmaker. Um, some of his recent movies have not had a great reception, but this one was very well received, and now it's made it to UK shores. I watched it on Curzon Home Cinema. You can watch it in the, in the actual cinema, if you like, or you can watch it on demand, however you, like, however you choose to watch it. So, um, it's set in Chicago. Chirac is a nickname for Chicago. It's a portmanteau of Chicago and Iraq, and that's a comment on the level of violence in Chicago, <laughs> where um, there's like a crazy amount of gun violence, and it's essentially equivalent to a war zone which the denizens have noticed, come up with a sort of witty name to uh, sort of appellation to describe it. Um, and it is based on Aristophanes' Lysistrata, a classical Greek comedy, which is a bit of a surprise. Of course. And in which the, um, the idea behind the original play is a group of women who withhold conjugal relations from their soldier husbands in order to try to prevent uh, or end the Peloponnesian War and in this case, it's gang warfare um, that is being targeted. And it's about a, a group of uh, girlfriends and wives of uh, gang leaders and members in Chicago, the Spartans and the Trojans. And uh, they're trying to, uh, by withholding sex from them, they w want to try to end the violence, basically, yeah. and like uh, cause peace to happen. Here is a clip of Liza Strata herself trying to convince her boyfriend, who is called, who's also nicknamed Chirac, confusingly, um, or also known as Demetrius, played by Nick Cannon. Um, and she's arguing with him over the sex strike. And that's intercut with Wesley Snipes playing another gang leader, rather gang leader called Cyclops, um, who's arguing with his own girlfriend over the same topic. Could be a little bit of a confusing clip. I don't know. Deal, <laughs> deal with it. 
He's so damn smart, you know you tweaking, right? You lame as hell playing games for real with this whack-ass panty stripe. And that's that shit we don't like. You wanna choose to be rude? Bitches gonna be tight when you make them lose their dues. I don't know who you think you're trying to change. I'm Trojan through and through. That's stronger than any damn screw. It's even bigger than you. All you care about is this tired gangster game. Well, it's lame. You think you die with fame? Me grow two days later, no one will even remember your name. Your machismo is really masochist. That's why I'm cutting off your jism. As long as you love the life more than a wife, we struck. So, I watched this earlier today. So this is a one-day opinion. Mine hasn't had one full day time opinion. to percolate. What is it? I, I really liked it. I thought it was extremely good. I, I enjoyed it thoroughly. I liked it in, in a number of ways. I think, like... Just in general, a sign of a movie that you're really enjoying is when you're watching something and loads of things pop into your head that it reminds you of. I had that feeling when I was watching The Wailing, where you're watching things that's like, oh, it's like this, it's like this. And if you think of that, of one thing, that it means the movie is derivative, but you think of like 15 things that it like makes it exciting. And um, Shawrack is a very exciting film. And it's surprising it's made by someone who's in his third decade of filmmaking because it has the kind of urgency and playfulness of a debut movie. Uh, it's kind of messy if you wanted to be mean about it, but like, there's a lot going on in it. Um, it's very angry and very playful at the same time. And it really knows its audience. It's not like the movie equivalent of an essay in the New York Times about gun violence. It's not like a collection of stats and like facts and stuff. And it's not going to leave you kind of stroking your chin thinking, wow, things are really tough in Chicago. Like that's not the emotion once you, once you leave the movie with. It's about... Um, it leaves you kind of feeling exhilarated and also indignant and you come away angry but you feel like you've been taught the things you need to know to go out and change stuff and it reminded me a bit of i daniel blake in that it's a very specific movie about a very specific problem and it's very explicitly political and it, you don't leave despairing you leave wanting to go out and organize and change things it's another it's a movie that's also like like daniel blake it's a kind of tribute to what can be done when people come together you know there's a lot of like human kindness in it yeah and people working with each other so the, the fact that it's based on a, on a great play i think works on a number of levels i think the fact that it's based on this like ancient sex comedy is a useful framework in that it is amusing like uh the whole like all the dick jokes and stuff work very well at least they worked for me i found them pretty hilarious good dick jokes. um and it also, uh, they've adopted from this more like formal theatrical background, uh, this kind of verse structure. And a lot of the uh, dialogue is delivered in verse. So I don't know. It's like, it's something I'm still kind of processing a little bit, but it makes it kind of theatrical and formal um, in a way that increases its playfulness because it feels like it's not completely naturalistic and they can get away with things that don't seem at all real because it's in that slightly heightened like world of theater and it's also very directly related to subject material because it's like rap and one of the main characters is a rapper and um, it invokes this form of black culture around hip-hop and also around gospel sermonizing and like fire and brimstone speeches and that kind of cadence that you get with great black speakers like martin luther king and stuff and it's kind of connects all that stuff together and that kind of verse structure is like links all these different modes of theatrical rousing speech um, in, a, in a way that I find like really, really effective. And the domestic scenes where people, it's just like couples interacting are linked to the scenes where there's like a great sermon being delivered because it's all in the same, like it's all within that register and it makes it seem not formal at all, but actually incredibly passionate because rap is something that comes like straight from the heart and so it's like this very very emotive art form that has takes has a kind of formal style but that still affects you like extremely directly yeah so i think it's just it work it works like it just works extremely extremely well what did what did you think of it i agree danny agrees end of the review <laughs> no i was well i feel maybe i'm just reiterating what you're saying but uh, the idea that um, the idea that funny and serious are not opposites, <laughs> and you can take a subject such as gun culture and gun violence, but by doing it in this sort of musical, hip hop Greek play way, it doesn't diminish the power of the message, but just makes it really fun to watch. Yeah, and I feel like 
it's a movie which sermonizes you. There's literally a sermon in it, but you don't feel like you're being uh, yelled at. Yeah, and it's great. <laughs> John Cusack delivers it for some reason. John Cusack? Well, it's really... Like, Where's he been? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you, like, there's all these like awesome black actors in it, and like the absolute centerpiece, most directly political, polemical part of the film is given to John Cusack, and he kills it. He, he crushes it. He absolutely crushes Cusack, it. Cusack, what a guy. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I recommend it. I liked it. Sick. It's like a mixture Ooh. between like a uh, filthy hip-hop album and the Ava DuVernay documentary 13th sounds sick so good actually what I'm talking about sounds sick I've seen it it's sick Ooh, time for a break from all the film chat have a cup of tea maybe make a quick snack and telephone friends so you know where she's at right that's enough now back to film chat So, Snowden, we don't know who he is. He looks a bit like Sam, but he's really good with computers. <laughs> so, Snowden's directed by Oliver Stone, shown by Oliver Stone and Cara Fitzgerald, and the it's the film of Snowden's life. It starts with Snowden, played by Joseph Gordon-Levitt, meeting documentarian Laura Portress, played by Mr. Leo, and journalist Glenn Greenwald, played by Spock himself, Zaria Quinto, in the lobby of a hotel in Hong Kong. If you've seen Citizen Four, this all seemed very familiar. And they go to a hotel room where they're later joined by uh, another Guardian reporter, Ewan McCaskill, played by Tom Wilkerson. And Snowden talks about how he came to realize that, that he had to leak this material. And the film flashes back to the events that led him there, um, including his brief stints in the army before he was discharged for medical reasons. And then he was swept up into the CIA surveillance program because he's so bloody super smart. And this was overseen by the Machiavellian character Corbin O'Brien, played by Reese Evans, doing this voice. This is a fictional. This this is the fictional character. Fictional character, yeah. and it also sort of ish, but not really. Talks about his relationship with his girlfriend Shailene Woodley, and it's also a bit about the hoo ha the Guardian had getting the stories out during uh, the four days he was in the Hong Kong yeah. hotel. And this is a clip where Snowden brings up his reservations about the surveillance programs with Corbin O'Brien while they're out hunting, because that's what men do. Most people already catalog their lives of public consumption. Well, they catalog part of their lives, and they do it by choice. We're not giving them the choice. We're just taking everything. Most Americans don't want freedom. They want security. It's a simple bargain. If Good girl. Good girl. If you want to play with all the new toys and be safe, you pay the price of admission. Except people, they don't even know they've made that bargain. Where's the modern battlefield, soldier? Everywhere. What's the first rule of battle? Ever reveal your position. And if one unauthorized person knew? If Congress knew? And so would the enemy. That, Mr. Snowden, is the state of the world. Secrecy is security, and security is victory. So, <laughs> I, uh... Don't think this is a good film at all, but it's an enjoyably weird film. And I think uh, my biggest reservation is you watch it and like, what is the point of this film? Because Citizen Four exists, which was shot at the time. Yeah, this was all and happening. it's an absolute thriller of a documentary. Absolutely well. brilliant film, which is all the Hong Kong footage of Laura Poitras, and but instead of being played by an actress, it's the it's actual the, person. That's actually what happened. And yeah. it unfolds in real time. You're watching history happen, and it's uh, pretty amazing. And I think uh, to theorize what the idea behind the making of this film was is that they wanted to reach the wildest the wildest and the widest <laughs> the craziest and the most craziest people uh as possible and but the way they do this is by dumbing down simplifying and at times just saying out loud what's going on and the approach is so redundant because the actual facts of the story are thrilling in and of themselves and they don't need to be hollywoodified but they have been in a way which is both stupid and hilarious so his ascent through the ranks is like a sort of deleted scene from Men in Black or something. There's literally a scene where he's like, solve this puzzle. The best time is nine billion hours. And he's like, I've just solved it. It's like, it's been 10 minutes. It's like, you cannot have that scene anymore where the person solves the super fast puzzle really quickly. Even faster than you thought. 
That was even in the trailer for the imitation game. Yeah. Kira Nutty does that. And there's also a scene where he's downloading stuff onto a little SD card and the bar's loading and it's stuck at 95% and the guy's going to come through the door. And it's like, this isn't 1995, Oliver Snowden. Things just work now. Things just download, <laughs> okay? Things don't get stuck. Buffering yeah. isn't a thing. Also, we just had the Bourne movie this year, and it, like the fourth Bourne movie was all people reading stuff on screens. Yeah, you can't deal with more drama consisting of things exactly. happening on screens. And I think the fact that you know how it ends isn't necessarily a problem because there's loads of movies which are based on real events which are thrilling exciting because you get caught up in the story. But the structure is very problematic because it starts with him after the events in this Hong Kong room but also, and keeps on referring back to that. So it's like, oh, is he going to solve this? It's like, well, I've already seen him in the Hong Kong room. I already knew he did it. And then I saw the movie and I've seen him do it. And now it's flashing back to before he did it. Yeah, yeah. And because, I mean, maybe this is just me because I've seen Citizen 4. But if you've seen, if you've seen Citizen 4, you remember those videos that came out. It's very strange to see these actors dressed exactly the same in, in a completely replicated hotel room. And it just makes the thing... I mean, the whole thing is a reenactment, but it just makes everything seem like a reenactment. So it's like you're watching an incredibly expensive but shit documentary of, like, you know, actors playing out someone's testimony. Yeah. Um, and it's just very odd. Um, and the performances are slightly all over the place. Joseph Gordon-Levitt, once you adjust to his weird vocal impression... Um, hello. Uh, I'm, Snowden. I'm Edward Snowden. Um... He think I think he's like an admirably committed performance. I think you know he's really going for it, and you know, hats off to him. And Shailene Woodley does her very best with what is completely no material. Yeah, as this girlfriend, she like doesn't. It's like oh, you're always so stressed all the time, and Raddy is like, can't you see that this man is wrestling with his conscience? Stupid bitch, girlfriend. Um, I'm not really sure about. I got some reservations about work. But um, I feel like Shane Woolley, maybe her performance is brilliant because on the page, her character is slightly unbearable, but she's just so likable and charismatic that she becomes uh, tolerable. So, <laughs> well done. <laughs> what a performance. And uh, also Ben Schnetzer, who was the lead in Pride, does a really good job of like layback slacker, amoral hacker dude is like chewing gum. Like, oh, you don't know that we hack everybody all the time? Oh, check out this fucking pussy over here. It's pretty much his character, but he somehow makes that works. Reese Evans is hamming it up so much uh, in a way which I think is kind of brilliant. And I think it's almost like he performed the scene, he performing the scenes as written, almost to demonstrate to Oliver Stone how stupid his movie is. <laughs> but like Oliver Stone was like, that's brilliant. He's like, okay, I'll just continue doing this, Oliver. Yeah. And uh, there's a one particular standout scene with Reese Evans, which is just so, probably the funniest scene I've seen this year. Uh, <laughs> absolutely hilarious. And I think. One of the biggest problems is that the film never really gets a handle on who Snowden is. He's a slightly unknowable character. Which is true in reality as well. Which is true in reality. And, but he's basically, because the movie's so simplified, he's portrayed as super smart, but also staggeringly naive. So he's someone who's so clever, he aces all the exams and excels through the ranks very quickly. But then he's shocked beyond belief that there's all these undercover operations going on. and uh, which, which, which doesn't make sense on the face of it because... He's got such powerful libertarian principles that he will risk his own freedom in order to get this information out to the world. But, like, <laughs> he must have had some suspicion of government beforehand, you know? Like, yeah. Surely. Exactly. Know. And um, the thing is, like, the story's about someone who's immersed in a culture and he was, you know, had this job for, like, years and then he decided to do something about it. But it's odd because Oliver Stone has done that character arc because that's the arc of Charlie Sheen's character in Wall Street. Somebody who was a amoral like stockbroker who then decided to he had enough of this lifestyle. And so that com- shades of grey, like he must have been somewhat complicit in this for a while and then decided not to, is completely stripped out of the movie. And it basically I would say Oliver Stone hasn't made a good movie in, in a long time, and it is very much an old man's movie both in the way that he doesn't really understand technology and uh, it's a bit of a rant. I mean, I did laugh a lot, but I did see this movie for free, so I wouldn't really recommend it. Wait, <laughs> wait till it comes on TV and uh, have a few beers and watch laugh at it. Home. And laugh, laugh at home. Laugh at home.
Yesterday I bumped into Imelda Staunton She was up with her dog and we got talking I asked her what she does when she isn't acting She said she likes podcasts for relaxing Imelda, when you're in the mood What do you listen to? So, exciting final piece of news. I learned recently via Dougal, um, I've heard from others, I'll say that famous posh English actor Richard E. Grant, absolute icon, has expanded. Um, he's added another string to his bow. He's not just an actor, he's not just a director, not just a writer, he's also a perfumerer. Is that the term? Perfumier. A perfumier. Um, perfumier. Perfumier. He's, uh, he's come out with his own scent, because when, when people watch with Nail and I, they think, I'm laughing at the jokes, but what am I smelling? Nothing. <laughs> so he's stepped into that gap um, and uh, produced his own scent. Dougal, what's it called? Uh, it's called Jack. It's just called Jack. Just yeah, Jack. Jack, um, and uh, he's on social media promoting his own perfume quite a lot, and uh, it's also got a website. And Dougal has offered to treat us to a little bit of the copy that he's written for his own perfume. So uh, if you <laughs> you're happy, take to it away. Take it away, Dougal. Okay, this may take several takes, possibly. Take as many takes as you need. All right. Introducing Jack. New Jack, Covent Garden. I've been led by my nose all my life, having aimed it at plates of food, linen, fruit, books, necks, fabric, flesh, flowers, cars, (laughs) and everything else in between. To finally have a perfume of my own is the realization of a boyhood dream. All my favorite ingredients are here. Lime, marijuana, mandarin, vetiver, pepper, cloves, and gardeniers. These earthy citrus scents combine to conjure up the hypnotic and unisexy perfume I've imagined for so long. Our sense of smell is the shortest synaptic leap in the brain to our memory, and every one of these ingredients is like a sensory trigger. I've aspired to create a fragrance that is lickably Moorish, as it is addictive. Jack is my signature scent. Love, Richard. Nice. Beautiful. Well read. Um, delectably spoken in a very convincing uh, Reg impersonation. He's got a real gift, uh, not only for perfumery, but also for words. <laughs> and <laughs> with that note, on that note. <laughs> on that note, on that citrus note. Um, we bid you farewell. Join us next week. We'll be reviewing Rogue One and the yeah, Eagle Hunter. The new Star Wars movie. That's pretty exciting. Star Wars, huh? And Eagle's pretty exciting. So count your lucky stars, listeners. It's going to be like Female Empowerment Week. Yeah. Mm. Jin Erso mm. and Asha Plane, whatever her surname was. <laughs> awesome. Goodbye. Goodbye. Bye. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the award-winning movie, Poor Things, starring Emma Stone, Mark Ruffalo, and Willem Dafoe. Check out the new documentary, Freaknik, The Wildest Party Never Told, about the iconic Atlanta street party. And don't miss FX's Shogun, a reimagining of the epic tale, starring Anna Sawai. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu.